Welcome to Kashras on the Air, your weekly radio show dealing with kosher issues for the kosher consumer. And I'm your host, Rabbi Yosef Wickler, editor of Kashras Magazine. And I think we have some very interesting show tonight. But before we start, I'd like to give out the numbers. If people would like to call in or you want to email us and text them, sorry, you could do that too. You call the studio. It's 718-683-5858. Again, 718-683-5858. And the text line is 347-927-8398. The text again, 347-927-8398. And if you want to know how to listen to us, the best ways, uh, if you're calling, uh, if you're listening on the, the Local number, a 718 number, 718-506-9099. Or you could be listening live also with 712-432-4217. And you can listen to us on jrootradio.com or get the JRoot Radio app downloaded from the JRoot Radio uh, website. And uh, so the topics for tonight... I'm not sure how far I'm going to get in everything because I don't, I see I don't finish it, especially if anybody calls in. But we'll start with a, a, a sort of a scary thing that's happening and not, hopefully it's not affecting anybody here, but it's, it's not far away and, and I don't know if anybody uh, is affected and we'll mention it. It's a certain recall of a, a certain kosher veal. They have listeria risk over there and uh was a little bit scary that has came up and uh we're going to mention about the OU the Orthodox Union and uh their stand on women being rabbis where they call marat it's a very interesting thing and i think everybody should know about it and i think it also ties into our cautious area as i will mention although i'm sure i'm going to get some negative response, but that's what life is. You've got to put yourself out. Uh, we're going to talk about uh, Parliament in the UK, uh, where in the Parliament kitchens, they banned kosher. Yes, that's correct. In the Parliament kitchens, they've banned kosher. Interesting development. Uh, we hope to get the oven kashras problems with the, you know, milchiks and flashiks, etc. Uh, that's a very interesting topic if I get to it. And I have a story here from the, we call the truth, uh, is, is Shrita cruel? It's all about Shrita and how it relates to uh, other things that are going on in the, in the meat industry. And I think that's a very interesting topic. I wrote up about it in the magazine. You know, almost finished with Pesach. I mean, you people didn't see Purim yet, but in Kashrus magazine, where we only have another week to finish up the Kashrus magazine for Pesach in order to get it ready in time to have it right after Purim in the stores and in the, in the people's houses and, you know, get a liver, you know, the ones who have subscriptions and, you know, it makes, to make sure that it's available for people for shopping for Pesach. And there's a lot of work that goes into that. It's amazing. And then there's another one also over here. If we get to it, it's a personal, it's a first person story about one gentleman and how he used his weight for Kashras or his weight lifting actually for Kashras. It's an interesting story, which we're going to, which we're going to hope they print in this issue of the magazine as well. So without further ado, by the way, the, uh, the, the, the latest issue is back already. The, what we call the poor issue, which just came out right now and it's already being distributed in the stores and, uh, it's, uh, you'll be able to find it in different places. If not, you can always contact us and our, our office number is 718-683-5858. 718-683-5858. 
718-336-8544. Just don't call there now because nobody's there. You can leave a message, 718-336-8544. And again, the studio number, if you want to call, 718-683-5858, 718-683-5858. And the text line, 347-927-8398. So before we even start anything, I get a call last night from someone I know, actually it's a Talmud, and he wants to know, can he eat at this affair? Well, he told me it's at a, uh, it's at one of these yacht clubs, you know, one of these trafer places that they have to cash her over. And uh, he told me, uh, didn't even know the name of the caterer, and he, he wasn't, he did know the Hashkocha, but he didn't know the name of the caterer. And he told me who the mashgiach was. Now, I don't know the man. I don't know the man. But he's a son of a very famous rabbi, and this, which we all know. And uh, I thought that that sounded like he probably would be rather careful. I can't be sure, but rather careful. So I told him how to speak to this man. And I, here's what he did, which is what I told him to do. I said, first mention the father's name. Say, Rabbi so-and-so, who I knew, and uh, I'm, I, I live in Brooklyn, and I don't eat every single place, and uh, I want to know, you know, what's how is the conscious in this particular uh, caterer in the particular venue? And, and then see if he eats, or ask if he eats. And that would be a very good sign. So the truth is, uh, he did mention the rabbi's name, and he told me it, it made a big hit, mentioning his father, and uh, it meant that it always also it gave a perspective, and he also uh, asked about the uh, you know he asked about the affair, and he see that this this mashkir was eating, he was actually eating, so that was a very good sign because a lot of times they they won't eat and 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 they all want to eat, everybody likes to eat. Especially out of these things, there's a lot of good food. So they really want to eat. And if they don't eat, it means that they don't really hope for what they're doing. They just have to do it. It's a business. And if they do eat, at least it means that they are satisfied that it's kosher. Whether they are any good or not, I don't know. But at least to give you an idea. So what happened here is the fellow said uh, the only problem he saw was the fact that they, the glasses are from the hotel. Uh, the, so the yacht club. So I, I told my friend here that, that the, uh, that the glasses, everybody uses glasses from the non-kosher places. It's cleaned in the dishwasher, and our assumption is it's all clean afterwards. And everybody that I know, everyone of the kashkochas that I know permits the use of the glasses that are not kosher. They're only using it cold. It's only for cold drinks. And and they consider that to be that it's clean and it's glass and it's cold and they they all make it like that. Nobody has any concern. Could somebody take a soup and put it in there? And then there's oh, you can say anything you want, but that is what everybody does. All these affairs. You go next time you go to an affair, if you get a chance to speak to the mashgiach, you'll ask him, and they'll tell you. Of course, we use the non kosher kettle for them. You're only talking about the glasses now for drinking, and that's all I'm talking about. Nothing else. Sometimes use the show plates, but, but otherwise there's really nothing else that they take from the hotel. So it, it worked out in his favor that uh, he was able to get the uh, fellow to talk a little bit, and he felt confidence, and the, the, the gentleman ate himself. And that was a simple solution to, uh, to something that was, you know, I had to decide on the, on, the, on the fly how to handle it for him. 
and uh, but people you know they assume a lot <laughs> they they always assume a lot they like to have everything on a silver platter and and in life doesn't go that way it just doesn't so you have to um you know think ahead and not wait until you've had the affair calling up, can I eat next course? It looks good. <laughs> it doesn't work that way. In real, in real time, it very rarely works that way. So let's go on at least to this first topic here, which, uh, you know, it's, it was a scary thing to see it. But again, I don't know if anybody is affected by it, but it just came. Um, it really says February 6th, but I just got this, I think, today or yesterday. Yo, February 11th, here it is. February 11th, I got it. Now, it must have started some off on, on February 6th. It seems there is a, uh, a problem with listeria in, in, in Canada. The Quebec Ministry of Agriculture and the City of Montreal's Food Inspection Division have issued a warning not to consume roast veal sold at the butchery at, at uh, I can't pronounce this, uh, Charcuterie Cachere. J&R Incorporated. There's a listeria risk. Now, the the products in question were sold at the Quartier Cavendish establishment until February 5th and bear a best date before date of March 5th, 2018. The veal was sold in both packaged and cut-to-order form under the label J&R Meat and Delicatessen, which agreed to a voluntary recall as a precaution and no cases of illness have been reported. So I don't know if there's any way that you could have this stuff in your house uh, or traveled there or somebody you know lives in, in, in Montreal. But they again, the company was J&R. I can't pronounce the uh, the French, though. Boucherie et charcuterie cachère. <laughs> I'm sure I butchered it. <laughs> in any event... Uh, it's, it's veal and it's, it's only from the, up to the date of February 5th was the issue. And JNR is the way you can remember it. And you couldn't tell anybody that we'd be affected in Montreal. Now, uh, I'd like to go on to this topic because it's sitting here and it was just interesting to me uh, about this question about the women in the OU being the rabbis, etc. Now, I'm not going to get lost in this, but I think it's interesting to all of us to note it. And it raises a question which I personally think is important for even the most Haredi among us to think about. That is, uh, what can a woman do in Yiddishkeit? What can she not do? What should she do? What shouldn't she do? This is a topic that doesn't go away. Uh, there, there are people, there are people who, uh, you know, have us in their society, the women have very limited uh, areas of functioning. They they don't go to work. Some of them don't drive. Uh, they have a very limited exposure to the rest of the world. There are such societies like that. And then there are others where the women are the main breadwinner in the family, and maybe the husband is learning, or maybe that she just <laughs> she's good. I I have a, I know somebody who is in Kashrus whose whose wife is a doctor. And most of their salary is coming from, from her, not from him. But he's doing a wonderful work in Kashrus, and she's doing wonderful work as a doctor and making a nice living. So, yes, there's, uh, uh, there, there, there are all kinds of situations. 
and, and, and everybody has to decide themselves what's appropriate, and it's, it's within your community. But this is interesting because the world is stretching it, whether that we should or we shouldn't, but the world is stretching it. And it's interesting to note what's going on. Again, there's not my, I no decisions here. <laughs> so don't blame me for anything that I'm reading. I'm just telling you what is written. Uh, this is a, based on an article, and I'm not even going to tell you who it is or where it is. It's, um, an, an article which, which, which dealt with it, and I'm going to make a few quotes. Number one. The OU, after years of discussion with various stakeholders and in the face of some opposition, has established parameters for a three-year period during which the umbrella body for American Orthodox Jewish Orthodox Congregation, means the OU, will work to bring its member synagogues, all the OU synagogues, who employ female clergy, then they are now. Presently, there are women who call themselves Rabbis, and they they use the word maharat instead of rabbi, but it's the same thing in their in their world, and they're calling themselves rabbis, and they're functioning in the synagogue as a rabbi. Now there may be a main rabbi who's a male, but the, they are called rabbis, and then the people will call them rabbi, and I'm not going to call them maharat; they're calling them rabbi. And uh, see, this they employ female clergy into compliance with OU standards, which stipulate that a woman cannot serve as a rabbi. So here we have a a complete problem for the OU. There are four synagogues right now in the OU that have rabbis who are women. Not the main rabbi, I think, but there are, there are, they're called rabbis, system rabbi, rabbi, rabbi of this, the rabbi that. They call them rabbis. And the question is, what's the OU going to do about it? So here is what's happening, and I and I I want you to hear this next line because this is a quote which has to start us thinking about what the parameters are. And I want you to know that a lot of women, young girls, women. Well, I'm not talking about the old people now. I'm talking about the you know people graduating high school and and, and afterwards, and it's just getting out into the world. These people are asking these questions in the very from communities. They are asking these questions, and there are a lot of breakaways. There are many people who break away in in orthodoxy from the grouping that they're in. They may go more to the left, more to the right, more to the left. They may go off the derrick completely. It's it's out there. So we're not promoting anything, but we'll listen to this because I think it gives a little bit of a feel of what can the woman do. What should she do? Not call herself a rabbi. None of that's ridiculous. We're not talking about that. But what things could you do? So this is what the OU said that would be acceptable for a woman. Uh, the OU synagogues. They could be high-level Torah teachers. They could be scholars. I don't know what that is, but okay, scholars. They can be yoatzot. Yoatzot are family purity advisors. Okay, women know that area, and they they want to they they they've been trained properly. I can hear that. Social workers, okay, pastoral counselors, because pastoral means like a religious counselor, uh, not the rabbi per se, but somebody in you know in the religious field. Pastoral counselor, it's not a rabbi. I can hear that one. Those roles have been expressly delineated in previous OU statements that they're acceptable in the OU world. 
Now, last year, there was a 17-page report on women serving as rabbis in OU synagogues. The panel concluded that it is not permissible in the Jewish law for a woman to serve as a rabbi, and the OU synagogues should not employ women in that position. But now they had a problem because there were four synagogues in the OU system that were doing it. So um, they what it's so they said in uh, it they decided to define a range of leadership roles that are acceptable for women in synagogue and community life, with the caveat that those positions must be acceptable to the rabbis working inside each specific community. So they're trying to find areas where the women would feel that they are being utilized in the in the religious world, and yet where they felt, where the rabbis and the people who were concerned about this did not feel that they're usurping or that they're, not to get the word usurping, that they are utilizing the rabbinic title, which we did, which they didn't, we OU would not accept. Now, they, they, they also, the OU appointed a doctor, Adina Schmidman. I'm not going to tell you all the details about what she is. She's from, but she's from the Philadelphia area. And she is supposed to develop the women's role. I'm going to skip the information that's given here. It's very interesting, but I'm going to sort of skip it because it's not too germane to us today. And uh, if you read the original article, it was written by Elizabeth Kratz, K-R-A-T-Z. You can Google it. I'm sure you're going to get it. Elizabeth Kratz, K-R-A-T-Z. Orthodox Union draws a line in the sand on female clergy. Simple enough. So I'm not going to mention the synagogues, but I'll tell you where they are. One's in the, in Riverdale. One's in Maryland. One is in LA. And one is in Washington, DC. Okay. That's, those are the ones that have the women rabbis in their synagogues. You know, years ago, the OU used to have mixed seating synagogues and separate seating, and they didn't have mechitzas. Eventually, they got rid of this group and we got rid of that group, but now they only have synagogues that have mechitzas, and that's what they want to do here, too. It seems it went a little too far that some of the synagogues do have these rabbis, and they're trying to wean them out. And they're giving the three years in order to have a chance for the synagogue to think about getting a change back to the old ways where the men are the rabbis and the women are whatever they're going to be. And uh, that that was the that's the hope that there'll be with communication back and forth, and eventually the synagogues will acquiesce to the OU's rules. Obviously, after three years, if it doesn't happen, then there's going to be a serious question in the OU whether they're going to have to remove them or not. But they gave him the three years, and the reason they gave him the three years is because they already had started doing it. But anybody, Mikan and anybody who wants to have a woman rabbi, they're not allowed to. They will, oh, you will fight tooth and nail. No other synagogue and no other rabbi and nothing else. You can't add on. The question is, can you, can they get rid of the setup that's in these four synagogues already? Or do the synagogues have to drop out? So that's where the OU was sitting, which I'm very happy that it came to this decision, although it took them a while, but they got there. However, here is a quote. From one of the rabbis. I'm not going to mention the name. He said, These men in the leadership of the OU don't want to give proper credit and respect to women. When they came to our office and spoke to the Maharats, 
the maratza, the, the word for women rabbis. Women grant the, okay, and ask them to change their title. The chutzpah. I feel that there is, there is very weak leadership at the helm of this organization. That's a rabbi in the OU talking that way about the OU organization. Unbelievable. I don't think he's going to go along with, with replacing the women, Marats. They'll, they'll probably get his job for sure. Anyway, here it goes on a little bit more from his, his, uh, his quote. They said they'll reevaluate in three years. I pray that in these three years, the OU will be reevaluated and there'll be new leadership that will not be so narrow-minded and short-sighted and that they can grow and be a more open and inclusive organization. Wow. The OU has a little bit of a challenge with this rabbi and with those synagogues. I don't know where to go. I'm jumping over, but you think they call himself rabbi? I don't understand why he forgot all, <laughs> he forgot all what he learned. He disconnected himself from the, our, 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 uh, what can you do? What can you, you can't make people over. It's, but, but I, I, I mean, I have to hand it to the OU took the stand and it, you know, we have a big problem about certain groups and certain parts of orthodoxy that are breaking off to the left and that they could actually break off and become a different religion, different grouping, and the OU is struggling with it. And I have to hand it to them for taking this stand at this time, although I think that they were a little too weak. I think they should have just told them, you cannot be in them. We're we voting you out now. That's it. I, I don't care who you are. These are the rules. Just if you wanted to put up a, you wanted to take down your mechitz, we wouldn't allow you. So we can't allow you this kind of thing too. If that's the decision, if that's the policy of the OU, then they're supposed to abide by the policy. But you see, it takes a lot of work on it. And anyway, I think in those three years, I personally believe that almost all those four synagogues will come around and change. I'm not sure they all will, but I think most of them will, and I think the others will break off. And I think that there will be a group at that time, and that my prediction, I hope it doesn't happen, that in three, three years from now, there'll be a different uh, orthodox group that will break off and become this new, you know, I'm not going to even mention the words, open orthodoxy, whatever it is. It's reform. It's be, we can use it. It's going, going to be, reform. it's going to be a break. Anyway, let me go on to the next topic. I got parliament. Now, this was a shockeroo because I, I never thought, you know, we, we were even near this in England. I've been talking about this problem for so long already. I'm, I'm blue in the face. I'm trying to get the, the cashless organizations and to, to take seriously the problems with Schritt in Europe. People don't seem to care in this country. They sort of think we are safe and that nothing's ever going to happen here. It can't be. If there's such anti-Semitism, there's such an interest in trying to get rid of Schritte in Europe, it, and they, they mix the, auth, the kosher together with the halal, that's what's happening across the world. You don't think it's going to happen here in, the, in America. It has to. Anyway, let's hope it never does. But Parliament, it seems, now Parliament wouldn't ban Schritte, but the Parliament Kitchens ban Shrita. Here's what it says. A de facto ban has been imposed on kosher and halal meat in cafeterias and restaurants in Parliament, in the UK, in England, which flies in the face of government policy on non-stun slaughter. The ban was imposed by the catering staff after consultation with animal rights groups 
Jewish and Muslim groups have not previously been made aware of this decision, and it's not clear how long the policy has been in place. We just found out about this whole thing. It's amazing. So I don't want to go into all the details, but let's just tell you a little bit. What it means is that they decided that uh, they're not going to have uh, any kosher there. And why? And it doesn't make a difference if you wanted it to be uh, a TV dinner. We will not carry it because they they wanted, here's what he said, a spokesperson said the catering service could not adopt adequate segregation techniques. In other words, how to segregate the kosher from the trafe. <laughs> we want to segregate the kosher from the trafe to eat kosher. They want to segregate us away because we because we're trafe to them. Because we slaughter without stunning. That's what they're telling the people in the, or Europe. So, somebody asked, they asked them, can pre-made kosher foods such as sandwiches, be a, which is easily available in supermarkets, could that be sold on the parliamentary estate? Would you allow us to take and put money into a sandwich machine in the parliament? The spokesperson said, Following careful consideration, the provision of kosher products when weighed against demand is not viable in terms of costs, logistics, and supplier management, what I call a cop-out. He's just saying that no one's going to buy it. Not true. Mamish is not true. It just, it was amazing that this is going on in, in Europe. I, you know, I don't know how they're going to solve the problem, but I think that's, that, that was a big discovery. That, that that they had, and uh, it's really very scary. And I think it's one more step in, in you know. And I finally I got a little bit of movement. I'm not going to tell you what the details are, but I got a little bit of movement recently. I have an email from one of the major players in Kashrus, and he told me that that he's they're listening to me now about this. So I don't know how far it's going to go, but they're going to bring it up in one of the meetings. And uh, I'm not part of it, but <laughs> but they're going to hopefully go a little further. I wrote a column going into the next issue, I think. I'm not even sure myself if I had the room. <laughs> it says that it, it's called The Truth is Shrita Cruel. Of course, Shrita's not cruel, right? I'm not, we're not, don't, we're not having a machlokas about this, whether Shrita is cruel or not. They're not a cruel thing. But the reason I wrote that is because I wanted to point out what the other people are doing. Seems, see, I'm a part of a group. This is a secret. <laughs> There's a secret group of people in Kashrus and people in, in in supporting Shrita across the world, you know, in Shrita UK and all these organizations. I shouldn't mention the names, but there's a whole group of us, maybe 50, maybe more. I don't, really, I don't even know. I never look at the listing on the, the mail emails. And the rest of them are Muslims. And the Muslims and we are in the same boat because they, for whatever reason, they put us in the same boat. And unlike what's going on in Israel, this group works together very closely. There's no, hi, how are you? It's basically just sending emails out. I send them materials that I see. They send materials they see. And I get a slew of materials from them. And they have a little sometimes a back and forth. 
and they're discussing the problems, the common problems that we all seem to have. And sometimes they're, you know, they work together, just like, like the Aguda would work with, uh, the Galachim, uh, you know, from, with the, with the uh, Christians in order to help defeat something or pass something in a bill and, you know, in the, uh, in the, with the, with the, with the politicians, they'll go together, they'll sign up together. You have to work with people. So there is this, group it is not official but it's real and it's been going on for a bunch of years now and this gentleman who is not jewish he's from the other group okay won't even go into it too far and he sent me something recently sent all of us something and i i really liked it very much so i adopted it i adopted it and adopted it and i and i went a little further than he did and i wrote a column but so I'm not going to read the whole thing to you, but it's it's just interesting um, how he he pointed out to me a couple of things that are going on, and I was I was flabbergasted. Now I know this is a family show, and and, and people don't want to hear any barbaric things, but it, you know, when they the the, the we do shrita, and that's the kosher killing way of an animal. The others. Meaning the non-Jewish people who are uh, not the Muslim, not the Muslims, not the Jews. The other people, they all do what they call stunning, and they have ways of of, of handling that, and they feel that that's better. But here's a fact, which is a little scary. It's that they have a thing called controlled atmosphere killing, and this is being done. It takes eleven to fifteen minutes for the animal to die, and it suffocates if it's for 11 to 15 minutes it's suffocating and this is what's going on by the people who want to outlaw shrita. and a chicken takes 7 to 9 minutes to die with this suffocation so this is the so called humane people that we're talking about there's another thing he told me I was literally stunned. I didn't know it. I think so. I think everybody else knows it. It's called culling. I did not know about culling, and 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 I, it, it's it was really shocking to me. Every week, millions. And that's not an exaggeration. It's not the one of these hyperboles. Millions of male chickens are killed every year. They're taken live and put in a grinder, and that's how they kill them. And why do they kill them? Can't use them. What do you mean you can't use them? Millions of chickens, you can't use them. can't use them. <laughs> it's a very interesting thing why they can't use them. It's very interesting. It's not a joke, the story about the killing all these chickens. But that's what they do. They, 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 they take them and just grind them in, alive. It's crazy. What, I, what, what do they have against these chickens? I'll tell you. There's two kinds of chickens that are used today. One's called an egg layer, and you can guess what that, that chicken does. It lays an egg. Male chickens don't lay eggs. Only the females lay eggs. So there are no male egg layers except the males that are born from the eggs that, 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 that came from, a, from an egg layer. But those egg layers, those, those males can't do anything anymore. And the other, the other kind of chicken is, is a broiler. It's what we eat when you buy a chicken in the store. It's called a broiler. And those broilers are not the same as the egg layers. So those male chickens can never become broilers. 
And the difference between the broiler and the egg layer is a million miles. Here's what, here's the main difference. The egg layer grows a certain size over a certain period of time. But the broiler that you and I eat grows very fast. They pump it up with hormones and whatever it is. It grows very fast, crazy fast, becomes crazy heavy. And that's why you can get the chicken um, and the chicken costs a lot less than a piece of meat because we got a way of getting that chicken big and fat very quickly. So the chickens that we're eating are not the chickens that lay the eggs. Not the same thing. It's not the same at all. So there's no purpose in these chickens. So they're killing them. So they decided, some one of these humane societies, how they got, I didn't even know about this thing. It's called culling. For what they did is they got the hold of, uh, you know, in the United States, they, uh, in Europe it's still going on, I think. In the United States, one of these humane societies got involved and they said, this isn't terrible, which I happen to agree, it's terrible. You know, find something for these chickens to do in life. I don't know, whatever they want to do. Let them, let them out somewhere living and do something. I don't know. Uh, so they, 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 they said, well, what are we going to do? They figured out a way. What they're doing, going to be doing is they, uh, they're going to, they're going to, they have machinery, whatever, how it is, works. I don't know. That's going to be able to tell which type of, uh, of chicken is coming out of that egg. They would take an egg, they'll take an egg and they put it into this machine or whatever and they're able to tell if it's going to be a male or a female chicken. 100%. They're going to know it's a male or a female chicken. And if it's a female chicken, so let it be born. If it's a male chicken, sell it quick as an egg. <laughs> and that's what they're going to do. In other words, all the eggs we're going to be buying are going to be male eggs. That's more or less, that's what's going to be happening. And uh, this was in 2016. They passed the law and they acquired it. And it will be operative in 2020. The, the 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 chicken business, want, the egg business, whatever it is, they wanted to have four years, and they gave them four years to put the get program together. So for two more years, millions of chickens are being killed, in, male chickens are being killed in the United States. But in Europe, they're killing them for sure. And I don't think they, I don't think they stopped doing it. I don't think they 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 voted to to to, to it yet. But this is the kind of thing that the regular people can accept that you murder these chickens with a grinder and you do this and you suffocate animals Ugh. and you're telling us we don't do a proper shrita. It takes 15 seconds maximum for an animal to die with shrita. 15 seconds. Not 15 minutes and not suffocating. It's a, uh, it's an unbelievable thing. It's an unbelievable thing that they get, that they're able to get away with all the things that they've been saying all this time. There's so many crazy things that they do to be able to kill the animals and the chickens, electrocution, this and that, and that, and that always work. A lot of times it doesn't die right away. With Shrita, it doesn't live very long. It can't, it's a 15 seconds. Yeah, there is this thing where the chicken without the head, yeah, by the stand, but technically it's dead. It's not, it's not aware of anything anymore. And, but these other ones that are suffering with electrocution and suffocation, it's bizarre how this is supposed to be more humane than, than Shrita.
What can I tell you? That's the world we live in. Yeah, Kadosh Baruch blind them, believe me. It's something they ah. ate to the Jewish people. It's that's, like, that's probably it. This is, whether they know it or I, not. I tell you, know. we have the books here of uh, Shechita, and you see that's 15 seconds there. Yeah, that's it. 15 seconds. I, I, uh, I didn't, no one's called in, so if you want to call, you can call 718-683-5858. You don't have to discuss what I'm talking about now if you want to speak to, about any topic. But I'd like to go on to something completely different, which is the oven. Now, I have my thing about the oven, and I'm going to share with you uh, some ideas, some certain things that came up, and I, I want I want people to be able to to comprehend this. And I, I, it, if you've heard me speak about it before, fine. If not, however you've heard about it before, there are a few things I wanted to mention tonight. I had the honor of sitting by Rav Usher Zim in Zatzal, who was one of the formidable people in 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 Yeridea and in Psach Halacha. When you know, twenty years ago, he passed away. So in, in, in that time, you know, before that, forty, fifty years before that, you know, all those years, he was a very major player. When he was a young man maybe 20, 21, 22, I don't know how old he was. He was learning in Europe but with Rabbi Hanan Wasserman. And Rabbi Hanan Wasserman was once asked a Shaila. I don't know if it was Hilchus Shabbos, Hilchus Brachus, Davening, I don't know what it was, but he was asked a Shaila in Orachayim. And Rabbi Hanan said, now of course, everybody loves the Talmidim, but Rabbi Hanan said, Gefreg Zimmerman, Er vast Mishnah Go ask Zimmerman. That's Rav Asher Zimmerman. Er vast Mishnah He knows Mishnah Brewer. Rav Asher Zimmerman became a Rebbe and the Mashkiach in Chaim Berlin. He was the Mashkiach before Rav Vigda Miller was Mashkiach in Chaim Berlin. And he was a Rebbe there. And the, he taught Yeridea so many times, I can't even imagine how many times he taught Yeridaya. And I remember when he taught the last time, he said, this is the last time he's doing it. It was really freaky to hear somebody say that, but that's, he knew it was, he didn't have the coil. He always said, he said to me, afterwards he has to learn from, just for himself. He's not going to be able to give it. Cause he, he, he gave Shurim in my yeshiva. I had a yeshiva for 19 years and he gave the Shurim in Yeridaya. And at the end he said, I, uh, this is the last round, last, a machzor, I, ha- I cannot go on to do it again. I have to learn for myself to prepare for the lamas. That was, was scary when he said it, but that's what he wanted to do. In any event, Rav Zimmerman knew Yeridea backwards and forwards. There used to be a joke, and I'm not kidding. If you ask anybody about it, there was a joke. This, everybody was saying this joke, that on the back of your smicha, it has Rabbi Zimmerman's telephone number. That that's what people were saying. I'm not, I'm not exaggerating. That is what people said. Because he was teaching Yordaya in so many yeshivas. And, and so many people learned from him Yordaya. That, and they all knew that he knew it like the back of his hand. And they, Bakoshi, would, <laughs> were trying to understand what's not by not, you know. And he was, he was the master. The masterful teacher. Now he held, the way I've explained here a number of times about the oven. He said the oven 
was uh, he he held it was very rarely any zaya in the oven. Only t- problem was the top rack, only within a few inches, maybe five six inches. It didn't have to be able to hit, hit five six inches to be able to hit the uh, hit the uh, the roof of the oven inside the inside the roof of the oven. Otherwise, it wouldn't be steam anymore. It would be just gas. And gas doesn't oscillate anything. It's called Reichelav Milsahi. But steam, actually, you see a vapor there. That vapor could make something tray or make something flashix or something milchix or whatever. So he taught that if even you had uncovered, uh, in the oven, uh, if it wasn't on the top rack, then you didn't have to worry. You could put the other food inside uncovered. So if you went from milk to flesh, you didn't have to wait 24 hours. He used to say, you don't have to wait 24 seconds. That's how he taught. And he, and I asked him one time, I said, Rebbe, where would you get this from? Because I knew Ramosha didn't say that. So he said, I got from Ramosha Rosen. Ramosha Rosen was the Nezah Kodesh. He was a big Tamachach, a big Yerushim. I printed a safer about 30 books about thirty svarim, uh, and he's, he he was considered to be a, a very big tamachacham, and he was the one of the major people here in New York, and at the time before Moshe was uh, as well known as he became later on, and this is how he was macabulit, and I I taught that he taught that to me so many times. I heard him say it so many times, and I taught it. I can't even tell you how many times, and I, I'm not going to go into all the details now. But I was teaching, <laughs> I, I give Shirim and Yerdeya. So Sunday morning, no, I'm sorry, this was a Monday, this was Sun, this was Thursday night. Thursday night, last Thursday night, I'm giving Shirim and Yerdeya, and we're up to this piece in Shulchan Aruch. It's in Simon Kufches. There are actually two places in Saudi Base in Kufches, but we're in Kufches. And uh, it talks over there about Zaya, which we mean steam or uh, vapor, call it what you will, but there's a moisture. Not just a dry uh, ga- gas, but a moisture, and that could that could create a problem. And we were discussing the milchiks and the flashiks and separating and then changing. And I showed him the in Shulchan Aruch saying what Rav Zimman is saying. And then we said, you know, but everybody knows there's other other opinions. Rav Moshe held you have to wait 24 hours between milchiks and flashiks if it was uncovered, and uh, the Hasidim hold you have to kasher, you have to wait the 24 hours and kasher, and it's a whole discussion. So uh, I said, you know what? I'm sitting right here, and there's a safer here, Rabbi Forst, from Art Scroll. I can't do better than Art Scroll, right? Art Scroll, they wrote the book on everything. So we open up Art Scroll, Book of Kashras, The Laws of Kashras, and the first thing it says is, you should have two ovens. <laughs> I couldn't believe it. You should have two ovens, and you should be rich, and you should be able, and you should have a big house, and you should have a room for everybody. What? Three ovens. Yeah, of course. I have kids who have three ovens. A Pesach oven. Okay, that's something else. No, I've never seen anybody who has a, a part of oven and milk is a place in part of I never saw it. But hey, listen, I can imagine. And you know something? Let them do it. But I don't, I don't begrudge anybody. But, for the last, uh, a hundred, two hundred years, maybe many, many more. No one ever had the luxury of two ovens. I don't think anyone ever, I don't know, historically until, you know, maybe the 1960s, 70s. I don't know when they started putting two ovens in a kitchen. It wasn't something that anybody had before. No. 
and everybody used one oven, and they had to have things uncovered, and they had to do it, and they, whether they were doing it by the Hasidish way or Moshe's way or nothing, but they had it this way. This was the way you had to have your, your ovens that way. It was just, just one oven, and that's how people lived. So I decided, you know, <laughs> my Talmud, I have a Talmud there very close with me, comes to the shir on Thursday night. He said, you know, he said, Rabbi Wickler, you had the zechus to learn from Rav Zimmin, and he heard it over from the Nezah Kodesh, and, and I'm only hearing it over from you. <laughs> it's like third hand already, you know. It's, I said, I, I, okay, so I got to do a little homework. So I started doing a little homework. I didn't do that much yet. I'll tell you the truth, I didn't do that much yet. But I did locate a couple of things. First of all, there's an Orcha Shulchan who says what we're talking about. Of the Vizimin's line. Uh, Shulchan is in Simon Tzadi base. I think it's Nun Hay. Yeah, I'm pretty sure it's Nun Hay. So it's Tzadi base Nun Hay in the Orach Shulchan. There's also a, uh, there's also a, uh, uh, Hadas, and I didn't see it yet. So I don't know where it is. It could be in Tzadi base or it could be in Kufches. I'm not sure where it is. Probably in Kufches. It, there's a, there's a, there's, there's a Chavaz Das who also says the same derech that you don't have to worry about the, uh, don't have to worry about the Zaya unless you know for sure that it was Mazia and on Minastam you don't have to worry about it. And uh, I'm not going to get into all the details about what that means now. This is something everyone has to ask their own Rob. I don't want to, I don't want to paskin for the, the world. <laughs> so, uh, we, 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 so I saw that, I saw, I saw them that, that we have those, we have those additional sources. And I said, you know, it, it's impossible that this wasn't the way everybody was doing it. I'm sure back in the fifties and sixties and earlier and later, this is what everybody did. And I, and I can't believe it wasn't like Makubal all over the whole world and the Ramosh was the radical who was being mocked me. That's, that's what it looks like to me. Cause I can't imagine that this wasn't the, the way that was accepted by everybody. And I, I think I'm right. In any event, we we went into this whole thing. So then I found something, and it really turned me off. And I want to share with you. It really turned me off. When I read these things, I sometimes get them from the Internet, and they have discussion. And I look at it sometimes, because sometimes there are very interesting things there that I could use. And I, I'm very happy to be able to find certain things there. But you can't believe what people are saying. So here's what I saw, which turned me off very much. People were saying, yes, people were doing like the Orch HaShulchan, and what Rabbi Zimmerman said, and what the Nezah Kodesh said, or Rabbi Wickler said. I'm not, any, I'm not a Baldova here, but I mean, when we were talking about the certain leniencies in the oven, yes, people were doing that. The grand, Our grandmothers were doing that, but they were ignorant. That turned me off. That turned me off completely. I don't believe they were ignorant. And I don't believe the Rabbanim were teaching them to cover everything up completely and never have anything exposed. I don't believe that was, was taught. I believe that what, what I, I learned from Avzim and, and what I learned from, and what he learned from, from the, from the Nezah Kodesh, when he learned from, from, from that that was Moshe Rose and that, that was the standard of Judaism then. 
Now, if, if it's Akshara Dara, if we're living in a generation where people can get the two ovens or can be careful to cover it over all the time and not to do this and to wait 24 hours in between, I give everybody a bracha that's beautiful. And I wouldn't, t- I wouldn't say that one has to be makel the way I've been teaching all these years. You don't have to. But you should know that's the din. And I don't, I, I don't think anyone would t- could tell you differently. I went through that chuva from Ramosha at Ashir. We went through it. And, and I went through that chuva from Ramosha with, with the first chalak of Yoridea. I went through that, that chuva from Ramosha 25, 30 years ago with Rosimin. And not once, but several times. And every time we discuss this, we bring out that tshuva again. We go through it. And we would say, Ramosha says the zeya in the oven. And Rav Simon says, show me where it says that. And we say, see the here? He says, look at the words. Mesupakani. I have a suffix. means a possibility. And then over here it says, I said, over here, Rebbe. And he would say, show me what it says. And we would show him. And he would say, you know, it says over there, Efsher, <laughs> possibly. So where is, where's your Vad Isaiah? So his methodology was, yes, if there is Zaya, deal with it. But there's no Zaya. Don't say there might be Zaya. Don't make it a whole to-do. Zaya isn't supernatural. It functions a certain way. And some Svar mentioned this, by the way. We don't see Zaya in our ovens. We don't see a, we, we don't see a vapor. We feel heat. We know there's a gas there. We know there's a smell there. But we don't see, we don't feel, we don't know, we've not noted that there's a serious amount of vapor there. So, and also there's a very interesting discussion in all these forums about, about what produces Zaya, what, what produces this steam, what produces this vapor. Is it, can a solid produce it or not? Very interesting discussions. So I, I advise everybody to look into the topic a little more. If you decide that you want to go with the old method, Rabbi Zimmerman, Rabbi Nezah Kodesh, Rabbi Moshe Rosen, the Orach Shulchan, the Chavadas, the people who, who felt that, you know, that it wasn't as scary as all that, fine. You want to go with Rav Moshe? You want to wait 24 hours if it was uncovered? Fine. You want to kasher? Because you're the, in the Hasidic world, mostly they kasher in addition to waiting 24 hours? Kol kavod. But the point is, what's the halacha? And what is the, what does the hamonam have to do? That's the issue. You can be machmir, you can give out on Purim, and say this was made in a fleshika oven that had once been used for fleshiks. You can go ahead and you can say this was made. We waited 24 hours, but we didn't kosher. And you know, if you want to call that a, a fleshika oven, then call it a fleshika oven. You could do what you want, or you can go with you know the, the other sheet that was more makel. But the first thing is learn it and get yourself a rebbe. I had a rebbe. I had a rebbe. I have a Rebbe now too. <laughs> I have a, Rebbe, a living Rebbe. But, the, but I had a Rebbe then. And I got from him as if it was Doima Lamalach Elokim Tzvakos. If you saw my Rebbe, if you saw his Yerushimayim, you wouldn't question a thing. 
<laughs> that's how he was. And that's, and I had the Zuchus to learn with him for many, many, well, over 30 years. So very, very, very fortunate to spend my, so many years together with him in Sheer and in personal and in the house and, the, and to get as much as I was able to get from him in his time. And uh, I advise everybody, get yourself a Rebbe. Stop listening to this one said that. I heard a little something. I'm getting confused. Of course you're getting confused. Cause it's an, an Ladava Sof. But when you have a Rebbe, then you feel clarity. I still feel that what Rav Zimmer said about this is 100% correct. But if you're asking me, how am I going to teach her from now on? From now on, I'm going to tell people, like I just said, Eilu ve'elu ve'elu divre'elu kimchayim. There's different shitas. They have, there's a lot of, a lot on everybody's side. And I don't want to buy machria for anybody. But if you ask me, bottom line, what's the halacha? I would say that Rav Zimmerman was, was, was presenting what was clearly the halacha, the accepted halacha for many, 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 many years. That's what, that's my feeling. Anyway, I don't know if I hope I didn't confuse everybody. I, I certainly went on for that more than I wanted. I only have a few minutes left. So I'm going to share with you something a little fun. This person also comes to my shia. Different Shia, different day. Sunday. Listen to this story. I'm going to read it to you because we just have that seven minutes left and I think the story won't take any longer. It's from my upcoming issue of the magazine and uh, it's his story. There's nothing really different than his story, but I wrote it. <laughs> Okay, in the in the magazine, it'll probably say a different name, but uh, you can you can listen to me. I, I wrote it, and but it's his story, because he told it to me clearly. We talked about it a couple times. This is my story, my one big kosher operation. Being a balchuva isn't easy. You have to get used to kosher, and and, and the big one, Shabbos, all thirty nine sections. It takes time. But I was there. And people knew it. The rabbis and my friends. Life was different. But I, I kept up my physical activities the same as before. I'm big. I ran. I biked. And I weightlifted. I did some heavy weightlifting. 300 to 400 pounds. I'm not Andy Bolton. He lifted over 1,000 pounds in a dead weight lift but I'm good. At least I was in those days before my accident. Today I still bike, but running and lifting, it's a thing of the past. But it's because of weightlifting and my physique, as it was 15 years ago, that I got the call. It seems there's a big winery, all kosher in California, and they had an emergency. You see, when things go well, you could manage a huge factory like that with just one eye open. But something jammed up. I never found out what it was. Hoses are used to transfer wine from one container to another. Wine is stored in huge tanks. Some are large enough to house 700,000 gallons. That's, that's the fact. I looked it up myself. The size of the hose and its weight especially when wine is inside, is in the hundreds of pounds. Here was their dilemma. They had plenty of juice, 
all FFB from from birth, or at least long term BTS. But they were fellows who went to yeshivas. <laughs> they didn't lift weights like I did. They had some big non-Jewish workers there too. They, they may have been able to get things straightened out, but they were non-Jewish. Had the non-Jews worked on the hoses, the wine would cease to be kosher wine and would have to be sold as non-kosher, a major loss for the company. And there was another concern. If this kosher wine company could not meet its expected orders, they would lose market share for years to come. It had to be worked on by a Jew, a kosher Shabbos observant one, like I had become, and he had to have muscles. I was duly shocked when my rabbi, who had learned of the need of that winery, of that winery asked me, "Would you like to take it? Would you like to do it?" He mentions the name here. I skipped the name intentionally. Those seven words meant a lot to me. It meant that the rabbi knew that I knew my Shabbos laws and plenty of other things, and I kept them. It was his not good housekeeping seal of approval. I sort of felt ordained as a Jew, much like when I first started practicing. Getting down to the winery was fine, but when I walked inside and saw those huge tanks, it was like being in a forest of redwood trees. I felt dwarfed. And those hoses, they're much heavier than a fireman's. It was work, heavy work, but I loved it. Here I was, a BT who signed on a bit late, making sure that you drank kosher wine. It was just for two days, but I lived from that experience. <laughs> I love that story. That, that, that says everything. You know, a BT, we need him. He's the same as everybody else. You could be from from birth. You can be learning Gemara all day, but you want to drink kosher wine. You got to get a Jew to make it. <laughs> and and you know you know you don't have to ask him all. Uh, ask a, what is, uh, the, the kasha on Rashi. You got to make sure that he can lift it, and that they keep shoppers and kosher. And if he does, you can drink wine, and everybody does that. Very few people make their own wine. But we have to respect the Balchuva. We have to respect the people who are helping make kashras available, the kosher food available to us. We have to respect what they're doing on our behalf. And we have to start looking at some of these people a little differently. Understand that we need them. We don't, we, we can't live without them. And that we have to respect them. Because they are, they are doing something very valuable. Four of a kind. Right, right. Absolutely. Absolutely. So anybody want to reach me during the week? It's 718-336-8544. If you'd like to get the Cautious Magazine, we want to see a copy. Um, we can get you a copy, no charge. If an email, we'll get you a sample copy. Or you can subscribe and uh, you can learn about our Cautious Monthly. And you can learn about the shiurim that I give. Hopefully you'll join us. We, uh, we, on Sunday we learn, uh, Chol HaMoed, Hilchas Chol HaMoed, and Hilchas Shabbos on Sunday morning. And during the weekday nights, Sunday, Monday, 
Wednesday and Thursday, we learn Yeridea, either Basa Bacholov or Taruvas. There are five shiur, six shiurim during the course of the week. And if you want to find out about them, just call 718-336-8544. And until next week, this is your host, Rabbi Yosef Wickler, editor of Kashas Magazine, wishing you a wonderful week. And join us again next week for Kashas on the Air.